Good morning. Last Sunday, I told you we were going to be in First uh, Samuel 24. Um, we're not. I guess I was multitasking, and uh, I lost track of where I was in the month. And since it's Palm Sunday, I wanted to, uh, to take us in a little different direction because I wanted uh, <clears throat> the Lord and the final week of his life, which is uh, initiated when he enters Jerusalem on that day we call Palm Sunday, and it was a, a triumphal entry. But that was the beginning of the final week of his earthly life, and on Friday of that week, of course, uh, after trial and rejection, he was uh, taken to the cross and crucified. And so with that in mind, and yet not wanting to lose sight of uh, David and our theme of learning to sing in the desert, I thought we would look this morning at Psalm 22. Psalm 22. So if you'll turn in your Bible to Psalm 22. I'm going to read the psalm. I must tell you, <clears throat> I've all, over the years, I have read this psalm many times publicly, often on Good Friday, and I have difficulty saying the words, my God, my God, correctly, because I don't know that I have the anguish, even though I try. My God, my God, represents not only from the lips of Jesus on the cross, but David in this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. 
They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like whack, water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Or, you, I, I prefer to read this, Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have rescued me, or you have, literally, you have heard me. For that sets up the next verse. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From, the, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. There are three stories attached to this psalm. The first is David's. Then Jesus. And then ours. Psalm 22 gives voice to all three. It's David's psalm. And it really reflects David's experience. This is a psalm with lament or complaint. In fact, of the 150 psalms, over 50 are called psalms of lament or complaint. 
And David begins with lament. In fact, the first 21 verses are peppered with lament. And then from lament, and in the midst of lament, prayer. And especially, we see prayer in verses 19 through 21, and then praise. You have answered me. And I'd like us to look at the psalm as David's psalm first. And that gives us a little bit of a perspective or a, a way of seeing the movement of Psalm 22 and what David has to say. Why are you far from me? He says in verse 1. And in verse, uh, verse 11, he'll say, Be not far from me. He'll move from lament uh, into prayer. I like to call lament issues-oriented prayer. I have an issue, Lord. And I have found that really has become the nature of my prayer life. Not just petitioning, but wrestling with issues that are before me. And it's not just to complain, it's to resolve. So I bring the issues to the Lord, and that's what David is doing. And I wrestle with those issues before him, speaking to him and listening to him, letting him hear my heart and hearing his. But in doing that, I'm managing my life before the Lord. I'm managing my emotions before the Lord. And I move from lament to praise. I always come out of issues-oriented prayer in a place of peace and resolve before the Lord. Even the most faithful followers and heroes of faith can feel alone and wrestle with the Lord. Every one of us should appreciate that. In fact, that's to me part of the power of God's Word. Real live people with real live faith and bringing your issues to the Lord rather than to others or just wrestling with them on your own and seeking help in other places. But bringing them to the Lord is an expression of deep and stubborn faith in the Lord. And that's important. And you should appreciate that. You should recognize that that is a very real dimension of faith, even when it's wrestling with doubts and discouragement and the feelings that come with thinking, God, where are you in the midst of my situation? And that's what David is expressing in the first couple of verses of Psalm 22. In verses 3 through 5, it's quite powerful that he says, You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. You're the devoted one 
And we are devoted to you, and you are enthroned on our praises. And then he begins to elaborate what that means, because our fathers have trusted in you, and you have heard them and answered them. And he says that a couple of times in the span of verses 3 through 5. It's quite poignant. But then he says, yet I am a worm and no man which is very powerful, because it's as though David is saying, in my experience right now, Lord, I, I cannot join our fathers in praising you. I'm really struggling. And he says, I'm a worm and not a man. I'm humiliated. I'm disrespected. I'm scorned and despised. Others mock me and deride me and shake their heads at me. In fact, in verse 8, their taunting raises doubts for David, causes him to question his righteous cause before the Lord. Have you ever been in a situation when you felt so isolated and alone and others are taunting or ridiculing you or saying that you are not a person of righteousness or your faith is in question or you don't really love the Lord and the Lord, how could he love you because you're not really committed to him? This is the kind of general rejection and scorn that David is experiencing in this situation. So in effect, he's saying, I'm not ranked among our fathers. I'm ranked among the nobodies by the taunting of others. Lord, don't just stand by. And then he says, you're my father. In verses 9 and 10, it's quite beautiful. He doesn't use the word father, but he appeals to Lord in all the intimate language invoking his birth from his mother. And being under, as it were, the tutelage as the adopted of the Father. God, I've known you as my Father my whole life. And he appeals to him as Father. And then he says, instead of, why are you so far? He says, be not far. Be not far from me. It's really a beautiful expression of his dependence on God, even though it's so painful to enter into the situation that he's experiencing. Is God far? Has God abandoned David? That's certainly the way he feels. That's what he's expressing. That's his situation. I know in my, in my life, and, and my walk with Christ now is about three years long. No, it's actually 40, but I thought that might date me a bit, and I got a little sheepish there. But in those early years, I remember two or three spells, cavernous, spaces of varying length where I went through times of, of real doubt and discouragement and a sense that, that God was so far away from me. And as the psalmist will 
often say, you know, I, I, I long to be among the people of God. Well, I could go and be among them, but I felt like I was somehow in a bubble or in a different place. It wasn't that I couldn't be geographically in the midst, but emotionally, spiritually, I felt somehow like David did, so dry and parched. I was thirsty for the Lord. I wanted to know again that great refreshment, that effervescent over, bubbling over that, uh, that had come to characterize my experience with the Lord. My prayers, I can remember, I have a very vivid picture of myself on one occasion because I was trying to pray and it just seemed like my prayers, instead of soaring like releasing birds, it was like they just dribbled out and dropped on the floor like molten lead. It was really discouraging to feel as though God did not hear my prayers. I can remember an occasion where I really doubted my salvation. That is, I doubted whether God could really love me or forgive me. That was a very lonely time. And it wasn't for want of wanting to read his word or listen to his word. I can remember, of course, in all of these situations, feeling as though God was nowhere near a little book helped me a great deal. It was, it, was called, it was part of a package of a few little pamphlets called Transferable Concepts by Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ. I don't know if those transferable concepts are still around, but I have a hunch they're probably online. And there was one on love and one on forgiveness and one on faith. And I remember reading the one on faith in which he talked about not confusing your faith with feelings. Not confusing your faith with feelings. And he led me to realize that in my Christian life, I was trying to walk by faith, but actually I was walking by feeling. And what I happened to be feeling was so real to me that that was kind of my barometer or, or true gauge of spiritual reality, of God's reality and truth in my life. So if I was feeling discouraged, that was an indication of where God was in my life. But what Bill Bright was saying was that that isn't a, an accurate gauge. That's a broken gauge. He used a little train, uh, a steam engine, a coal car, and a caboose. And he said, living your life by feelings is like trying to pull the train by the caboose. You can't do that, he says. But he says, your faith is like the coal car. You put your faith into the engine, which fuels the train. And what is the engine? The truth and trustworthiness of God's Word. It takes a little practice, but that really has become a hallmark of my Christian experience. Being able to, to take God's Word so to heart that it trumps my feelings. It triumphs over my feelings. 
And so when I question whether God really could forgive me, now I listen to that and I say, it doesn't matter what I feel, I know God has forgiven me. And that tends to change my feelings, even the way I see myself. I am forgiven. And what does that mean? That means get off get up off your pity pot and get back out there. Get back in the game and start living in the joy of Christ. Tommy Walker wrote a, a song that we sing here quite a bit, and there's a chorus. It's, the song's called When You Don't Know What to Do, and this is the chorus. When I don't know what to do, I'll lift my hands. When I don't know what to say, I'll speak your praise. When I don't know where to go, I'll run to your throne. When I don't know what to think, I'll stand on your truth. When I don't know what to do. David is wrestling with God's truth under the hot breath of present dangers. And he doubts even as he hopes. Like a child who, uh, I can remember when I had nightmares or boogeymen were under the bed at night, I would, I would get up and I would go to my parents' room in the middle of the night. I mean, my dad could have been the president, but I felt free to just walk right in there and say, Dad, I need you. That's the kind of access we have to the Holy Father. Like his child, we can just interrupt him, as it were, in his sleep at 3 a.m., and say, Father, I need you. Be not far from me. And that, indeed, is what David says. In verses 12 through 13, he likens his enemies to vicious animals, to bulls. Uh, Bulls of Bashan were very strong bulls. So they, you know, if you're going to buy a bull, get a bull of Bashan. Uh, Lions. Uh, no need to go any further. Lions are lions and dogs, vicious dogs. These are not pets. These are vicious dogs. And these are the symbols that David uses to describe those who are threatening him. And he pictures this not only in terms of vicious animals, but he also pictures this threat in terms internally, which is, I, I don't know of more powerful imagery in all of Scripture as that which we find in verse 14 and 15. Let me read it again. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. In other words, a dry earthenware pot, and when it's broken, a pot shirt is a piece of dry pot. That's how he describes his strength. There's no vitality, it's brittle. My tongue sticks to my jaws. How dry is his mouth? You lay me in the dust of death. He sees himself on the very edge, the very cusp of death. This is vibrant imagery. 
And then in verse 19, David declares, God is my strength. Come quickly and help. So you can see him going back and forth. We don't know David's situation. There is nothing in the chronicle, in the story, in the record of David's life that approaches the gravity, the, the, the weight, the danger, the risk, the threat of what he is describing here in Psalm 22. And what's powerful, and you may not have noticed it, and we're going to look at it very briefly here in just a moment, but when he is delivered and begins to break out in praise and thanksgiving, I mean, it is over the top. Over the top. I mean, he not only sh- starts with his, his fellow people in the congregation, and, and I mean, he even breaks out in the psalm, and he's... He's actually speaking to them in the psalm. Psalm. Praise Him. Glorify Him. But then He moves to the ends of the earth. And He pictures the high and the mighty to the lowest low. Even those kissing the grave, He says, they're all going to praise the Lord. I mean, what a redemption. What a deliverance. And that causes me to imagine that somehow, perhaps, although there's no way to know for sure, that, I mean, this is just my imagining. I think Stephen shared with you 2 Samuel 7, where Nathan came to David and revealed to David that God was going to establish the house of David, his kingdom and his throne forever. Do you, do you know that from 2 Samuel 7? David is just blown away by that. And he, he gathers the implications of it. In fact, in 2 Samuel seven nineteen, he says, he says, this is, this, I can't even comprehend this, Lord, that you should honor me in this way. And who am I? And then he says, that th- he says, this will be the charter of humanity. He sees the implications of his kingdom, not just for himself, but a kingdom that has centered the worship of God in Jerusalem, that has elevated the Lord and united the tribes of Israel and should unite the whole world in honoring God. This is the charter of humanity. And I wonder if somehow David sees this perhaps in jeopardy. Because only in somehow his, this promise of God to him, if, if somehow he's questioning that, and then he, that is redeemed and, and vindicated, then, of course, the whole world should be involved, right? I don't know. That's just in my mind when I try to understand the implications of what this psalm reflects in his heart. But certainly Peter, the apostle, in Acts 2.30 calls David a prophet, that he saw and spoke of Christ. And certainly he's talking about his situation, but in many ways what he's talking about is, ex- 
expressing in the most soulful terms what he's going through. And you know how we can sometimes use really graphic language and kind of push the limits to express our heart, but it becomes realistic description of he who fulfilled the promise to David, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And so it's not only David's psalm, but it's the psalm of Jesus as well. Some have called it the fifth gospel because it so graphically depicts the suffering, death, and also perceives the resurrection of Christ. In the story of Jesus' death that we find in the Gospels, Psalm 22 is quoted more than any other psalm. And I believe Jesus meditated on Psalm 22 from the beginning to the end. I think he was intimately acquainted with Psalm 22. In those days, people didn't have pocket testaments. They didn't have uh, the Gideons passing out little Bibles. You know, just one scroll was... <laughs> even if it was written very small, was very costly. They didn't have, well, they could have big handbags, I suppose. The point is, is that they hid this in their hearts. I believe Jesus hid Psalm 22 in his heart, and it refreshed his soul, even on the cross. In Matthew 27:46 and Mark 15:34. We're told Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David's cry expressed the cry of Jesus' own heart and soul on the cross. And I think it's interesting. This is just a supposition. This is just a, my hypothesis, my idea. But it is common. In fact, all the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible... Instead of calling Genesis, Genesis, it's called Bereshith, which is the first Hebrew word. Exodus is called, entitled Exodus. Not, that, those are the words that we've given to them from Greek, but the first Hebrew word. The, the opening words of a book become the title of that book. Jesus is quite possibly in saying, My God, my God giving us also a clue that the whole psalm is in view. Just my thought. But notice this. Not only is the beginning of the psalm revealed in what Jesus said, but the end of the psalm. The very last word of the psalm. The very last word is, He has done it. And from the cross, we read in the Gospel of John 19.30, Jesus cried, It is finished which is a translation that is given to us in Greek of the Hebrew, He has done it. It is done. He has done it. 
I just find it so profound. And yet, it comforts my soul to think that not only does the psalm reveal so much and point us to Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. So does the word Christ in Greek, just as Messiah is Hebrew, the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one, the one who is to come, the one that we look forward to, history looked forward to, to be that true fulfillment of the David. And it can not only... I, in fact, by the way, let me just... I, I happen to think that Isaiah the prophet drew on some of the imagery of this psalm in Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 5, because Isaiah came after David. He grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. This is uh, David imagery. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Almost like a bridge from Psalm 22 to Isaiah to its fulfillment. For Jesus is our Redeemer in a way that David never could be. He establishes the kingdom. And it begins with our hearts. In Jesus Christ. And it's not only David's psalm and Jesus' psalm, but it's our psalm because we can share in David's lament and prayer and praise, which is so important. It's our psalm because we can know that this psalm expressed Jesus' heart both in his agony and perhaps it's his consolation in the Lord his Father, our Father now, through Jesus Christ. In His words, His prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. He has done it. It is finished. can also be our certainty, which Paul expressed so eloquently, so powerfully, so, in such a manner that there is no exception in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We belong 
to the unborn generation. Remember those words from the end of Psalm 22? When David said, not only shall we, this present generation, but the next generation, and that generation, to the generation yet unborn. We are that generation that can know that God is our Redeemer. There is no darkness so great that God is not our Redeemer. No darkness so great that God is not our Redeemer. And the cross and resurrection are so powerful. I hope this week you'll reflect on Psalm 22. And I hope you'll go to it not just on Easter week when you're discouraged or disheartened or you know someone near to you is disheartened or discouraged. To realize King David expressed his heart in this way and through that dry period knew God's redemption and could call him his redeemer. And that that reflected not only on Jesus, but expressed his inner thoughts, I believe, on fairly good grounds. You got better grounds? I don't think so. I mean, that's just a beautiful thought to me that in, in such a a dark period, difficult period, when he was bearing the weight of the sin of the world. And my sin was right there in the midst of it. This psalm was on his heart. The most powerful thing we can do is live our lives in the light of the forgiveness that was won for us at such great cost. He rules your heart and mine when we accept his forgiveness. And out of gratitude for a debt we could never pay to the holiness of God, never, out of gratitude, we invest our lives. We serve the Lord. And he rules. His kingdom is really alive and resident. His reign is powerful in our lives when we live for him. That's the greatest tribute that we in our humanness can pay unto the Lord to give our lives to him, as we sang, our whole heart unto him. And his forgiveness makes that possible. Will you stand with me? So today or tomorrow, when you're listening to the news or someone wrongs you, or a bird flies over and drops something on you. I mean, sometimes it's the littlest things, isn't it? And sometimes it can be really big things. But they're all alike before the Lord. And we can turn to Him. And we can know His love and know His forgiveness. We can find resolution there. And our immediate discouragement or wrestling should not be a, contribu a contribution to our dismay. It should be a part of moving toward the Lord as we turn to Him. 
armed with this psalm, armed with the heart of David, armed with the heart of the Lord, and what he did on the cross for us, and triumphed in the resurrection, we can triumph too in the love of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us when I say amen. You don't have to just leave if you want to come forward and pray because the Lord has spoken to your heart. Maybe you want to come and pray with me or one of the pastors, elders, or their wives. We'll be up front here. Maybe to pray for someone else. To pray like the psalmist. To just come and maybe have a moment with the Lord and someone else. If that's the spirit of your heart, what God's prompting you to do... We ask you to do that. No better way to enter Holy Week than to know the Lord and understand the meaning of it all. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you can change all that with an act of faith, and it starts with stepping out. Come and tell us. I want to know the Lord. He's at hand, and you can know Him today. And we can put your hand into his hand in faith. He lives. He lives. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for David. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for generations of people who have known you and raised and elevated and glorified your name out of faith in recognizing your hand what you've done, your truth, and how we can appropriate it by faith and walk with you. We praise you in Jesus' matchless name and all of God's people said, God bless you.